You won't believe your eyes, shouted Frank Hansen, hoping to lure passerby to his latest spectacle. And for the most part, the public was inclined to agree with him. In spring 1967, he'd claimed to have gotten his hands on something truly unbelievable. An ape man trapped in ice. Hansen was a sideshow performer, and up until this point, his biggest attraction had been an ultra-rare prototype John Deere tractor, so audience members dismissed his creature as clever prop work and puppetry. But just a few months later, the Patterson-Gimlin footage turned hairy hominoids into a global obsession. Suddenly, even scientists were clamoring for a look at the thing in the ice. And to the world's shock, a pair of renowned zoologists declared that Hansen's Iceman was the real deal. I'm Emery Coolcats. This is the Museum of Natural Mystery. going to set the stage by quoting an article titled New Creature Show Bows from a July 29, 1967 issue of Amusement Business, the most prestigious sideshow entertainment publication around. Among the outstanding back-end shows making its debut this season is Frank Hansen's Cyber Scoia Creature. Tab was 35 cents, 25 cents for kids. The creature is framed in a 40-foot semi, which can be folded up and on the road in 45 minutes. Trailer has paneled walls, carpeted floors, individually lighted airline-type steps, and watchman's quarters in front. Exhibited in a specially designed refrigerated coffin which maintains 10 below zero at all times, the creature is frozen in a 3,000-pound block of ice, clearly visible through a double thermoglass top, which prevents frosting and acts as a heat barrier. Hansen poured all of his money into a top-of-the-line mobile trailer, which he used to cart around his frozen ape-man, touring the United States throughout 1967 and charging a nominal fee for access to his missing link. If Indeed, it was a missing link. You might have noticed that the passage refers to his ape man as the Cyberskoya creature. This was the name of the creature's supposed faraway home, and it was just one of the countless origin stories swirling around, most of them perpetuated by Hansen himself. In some versions of the tale, Hansen claimed the creature was found at sea by either Russian seal hunting or Japanese whaling vessels, floating in a block of ice like some kind of Sasquatch Captain America. In other versions, Hansen claimed the creature was found in a deep freeze facility in Hong Kong or Vietnam. Among the best known of the origin stories, however, is that the animal was gunned down by a woman hunting in Minnesota's Whiteface Reservoir region, and was later frozen in ice for the sake of preservation, earning the beast 
its more common pop culture name, the Minnesota Iceman. No matter which version of the story he was telling, Hansen always maintained that he was not the Iceman's true owner. He claimed the carcass was only his temporary ward and that he was charged with its care by a mysterious eccentric benefactor. This shadow owner, secretly but not so secretly rumored to be actor Jimmy Stewart, had chosen Hansen for his ability to shine a well-deserved spotlight on the incredible discovery. By now, you're probably thinking this all sounds a little suspect, because you listeners aren't fools. Hansen was a sideshow ringmaster extraordinaire, and his story was whatever it needed to be to keep the act running. That being said, photos of his Iceman do depict an almost modern-looking, even cartoony incarnation of what we'd call Bigfoot, right down to the oversized hands and feet. One would be tempted to think that Hansen maybe had a puppeteer make a dummy based on descriptions of the famous cryptid, if not for the fact that it would be six to seven more months before Bigfoot as we know it hit the spotlight. Indeed, one might even wonder if Hansen really did bag an ape man, or if his prop artist just had remarkable foresight. Just how did Hansen nail this representation? For all the various tales about where the Iceman came from, its actual origin may just be a brilliant execution of several inspirations. For one thing, the sideshow circuit was no stranger to animals encased in ice. At the same time that Hansen was touring with his Iceman, for example, a man by the name of Jerry Malone was exhibiting a 20-ton sperm whale frozen in nitroglycerin, affectionately named Little Irvy. Malone transported Irvy in a specialized refrigerated truck, and compared to the $80,000 cost of Old Blue, as Malone's truck was known, Hansen's Iceman trailer was relatively easy on the pocketbook. However, tales of Himalayan hominids were perhaps the creature's main inspiration. If you listened to my Bigfoot episode, you might recall that about a decade earlier, the film The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas hit theaters, introducing Americans to the concept of hairy wild men in the snow-capped mountains. The film depicted large, humanoid footprints trailing through the snow. This image later inspired the Bluff Creek footprint hoax, which became the foundation for the existence of a Pacific Northwest Bigfoot. Given that the Minnesota Iceman is a hairy ape creature surrounded by ice, it's a fair bet that maybe a similar light bulb went off in Hansen's head, and he just went with a method of exhibition that seemed to work for others. The world's most shocking monster. No one's ever lived who's seen him. Be on your guard. He's coming to this theater. The abominable snowman dares you. We dare you. Dare you to see the abominable snowman of the Himalayas. Ah! 
Whether or not Hansen was trying to convey that his Iceman was the Himalayan mystery monster, he was definitely giving off that impression. At the 1968 International Livestock Exposition Annual Fair in Chicago, an abominable snowman enthusiast named Terry Cullen got a peek at the Iceman carcass and instantly became convinced Hansen had obtained the fabled creature from the movies. Positive that this was history in the making, he contacted Scottish zoologist Ivan T. Sanderson. Sanderson was an old-school explorer type, famous for his written accounts of his specimen-collecting expeditions to British West Africa, the Caribbean, and Latin America in the 1920s and 30s. After having allegedly been attacked on one of his travels by a Kongamato, a pterosaur-like creature rumored to dwell in the jungle swamps of Central Africa, Sanderson developed a fascination with hidden animals. He would go on to coin the term cryptozoology. Sanderson was a believer when it came to the Yeti, and his opinion carried a lot of weight in the burgeoning pseudoscience. Still, he recognized that if Cullen's tip was legit, then this job was too big for him alone. He reached out to, quote, just about the only man in the world fully qualified to pronounce upon such an item as this, Dr. Bernard Huvelmans. Zoologist Bernard Huvelmans of the Royal Academy of Sciences of Belgium is widely considered to be the father of cryptozoology for his work in legitimizing the search for and study of animals yet unknown to science. His book, On the Track of Unknown Animals, is something of a holy work to those who seek unidentified creatures. Together, he and Sanderson were essentially the cryptozoology ultimate team-up. In December 1968, the two zoologists traveled to meet Frank Hansen at his home and get a look at the ape-man carcass for themselves. Sanderson wrote rather romantically of the experience in the May 1969 issue of the magazine Argosy, for which he was the science editor. On the whole, Bozo, as we nicknamed him, is a very sturdy, approximately six-foot-tall human, covered with two to four-inch stiff but thickly growing hair, except on the soles of his feet, the palms of his hands, his penis, and his face. He has practically no neck, the muscles from the side of his head forming a great triangle that flows into his shoulders, which are very wide and constructed like those of a powerful human wrestler. His torso is what is commonly called barrel-shaped, and it tapers down not to a waist, but to rather narrow hips. His legs are actually about the standard length for a six-foot man, but his arms are longer than the average. His most outstanding features, and those which strike one first, are his hands. They are enormous, rather spatulate, but of entirely human proportions. The feet are more than ten inches wide. Unfortunately, both eyeballs have been blown out of their sockets, 
one appears to be missing, but the other seems, to some at least, to be just visible under the ice. This gives Bozo a gruesome appearance, which is enhanced by a considerable amount of blood diffused from the sockets through the ice. Looking at the body of a descendant of one of my possible ancestors, especially since it looked as I had always expected it would, really shook me up. We spent the afternoon photographing it. I held the lights and things for Bernard while he tried to get shots in under the opaque parts of the ice. We left at sundown. Huvelmans and Sanderson spent hours scrutinizing the creature. At one point, the protective glass casing cracked, and both men reported that the foul odor of decay seeped into the room. That was the clincher. This, they were sure, was a real-life mystery hominid. The men finished out their time making meticulous anatomical illustrations of the Iceman. To Hansen's surprise, the scientists told him that they'd verified the creature's authenticity and wanted his blessing to go to print. Hansen, coy as ever, told the men that, well, yeah, of course, the creature was real, no doubt, but just to be on the safe side, it was probably best not to go to print. According to Ivan Sanderson, it was explained that the owner, quote, did not want to fool the public, unquote, and had therefore billed this exhibit as a mystery, and as most probably being some kind of oriental fakery. Moreover, he does not want to know what the thing in the ice really is, because if it is a phony, he feels that by advertising it as some sort of Ice Age man, he would be committing a fraud on the public. Hansen was insinuating without outright admitting that the Iceman was a fake-out. Perhaps he felt a little guilty over how far his Iceman act had gone and wanted to give these gentlemen an out before they went and embarrassed themselves. Unfortunately, Sanderson and Huvelmans were a couple of sincere science nerds from a more earnest world, a realm where... When someone claimed to have something, it was because they really believed they had it. Conflict usually arose from who was going to get to publish something first, not over whether to publish it at all. They didn't understand Hansen's resistance. It honestly may never have occurred to them that he was taking them for a ride. They insisted on going to print. At this point, Hansen marked them for absolute suckers, and went all in. Within weeks, Sanderson printed his article in Argosy, and Hubelmans published a detailed technical paper describing the creature he was now classifying as Homo pongoides, meaning ape-like man, in the Bulletin of the Royal Institute of Natural Scientists of Belgium. Listen to the closing remarks Hubelmans added to Sanderson's Argosy piece. For the first time in history, a fresh corpse of Neanderthal-like man has been found. 
It means that this form of hominid, thought to be extinct since prehistoric times, is still living today. The long search for the rumored live ape man has at last been successful. Hevelman's endorsement was such a legitimizing force that the Iceman experienced a small pop culture boom as 1970 rolled in. Hansen was making money hand over fist. He claimed that his attraction received roughly 200,000 visitors in 1969, estimating $50,000 in profit, which at 25 to 35 cents a pop is not too shabby. The Iceman even had a small stint in an episode of Scooby-Doo titled Scooby's Night with a Frozen Fright. Now here's my plan, Shaggy. All you and Scooby have to do is to find the caveman and let him chase you through that doorway. And when you do, we simply drop the net on him. Noise! Hold it! There he is now! Okay, Scoob, do your stuff! But, most importantly, Hubelmans and Sanderson's sign-off cultivated a dedicated crowd that agreed the Iceman was a genuine animal, and it tempted other scientists to conduct their own examinations. Not long after the two published their papers, primatologist John Napier of the Smithsonian Institute paid Hansen a visit. He took one look at the Iceman and immediately declared that it was a latex model, an obvious ruse for entertainment purposes. It led him to ask the question that skeptics, and likely most of you, had been asking since the beginning. How had Hevelmans and Sanderson been so thoroughly duped? All the red flags were there. Hansen had 100% made up Cyberskoya, the creature's alleged home. That's not a real place. He'd also told so many stories about how the creature had passed into his possession that even he couldn't definitively pin down its origin. When Napier got a look at the Iceman for himself, he compared the creature to Hevelman's and Sanderson's prior sketches and photos and found discrepancies in the positioning of the face and body. When confronted about this, Hansen claimed that it was because he had recently switched out the real Iceman with a latex dummy, out of fear that he might get into trouble with law enforcement over displaying a variation of human corpse. The real Iceman, he said, had been moved to a secure, secret location. A likely story. Were Huvelmans and Sanderson willfully ignoring these inconsistencies? It appears their respective judgments were colored by bias, to a degree. It's interesting to note that Hevelman's technical paper is not co-authored with Sanderson. Hevelman's presented his findings independently. The experience with the Iceman caused something of a falling out between the two friends, primarily over a disagreement about whether the creature was more man than ape, or more ape than man. 
Although Huvelmans at first referred to it as an ape man, he eventually came to believe that the creature was a surviving Neanderthal. Sanderson, however, was pretty gung-ho about having found an abominable snowman and quickly began shouting as much to media outlets. Huvelmans disapproved, since he felt there hadn't yet been sufficient time to organize their conclusions. In the quote from the Argosy article, Sanderson mentions that they'd referred to the Iceman as Bozo. He took to using this name in the press as well, a move that Huvelmans felt was counterintuitive if the idea was to be taken seriously. Respected though he was, when it came to dignifying the pursuit of cryptids, Sanderson had a knack for undermining his own credibility. Throughout his life, he'd supported claims of creatures that were increasingly far-fetched, and now, it seemed, he was at it again. For example, in 1948, a set of gigantic three-toed tracks turned up in Clearwater, Florida. Sanderson traveled to the location and investigated the tracks at length. In a 1969 book titled More Things, a follow-up to his earlier things, Sanderson revisited the occurrence, writing that he'd determined the footprints were made by a bird. Not just any bird, mind you. Based on the size and pattern of the tracks, he surmised the responsible party must be a thick-billed penguin, standing about 15 feet tall, secretly haunting the Florida coast. A dubious explanation at best. And soon enough, a man by the name of Tony Signorini copped to making the tracks with a set of cast iron, prosthetic, three-toed feet. Sanderson was a bit of a strange bird himself, though. In the same book, he shared his take on the special effects in the early stop-motion masterworks Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World and 1933's King Kong. The films continue to impress audiences even today, nearly a century later, but it's never been any great mystery how the dinosaurs were animated. Here's Sanderson's take, though. Even in the late 1920s, the dinosaurs in the film of Conan Doyle's The Lost World were utterly realistic. Close-ups of their heads showed drooling saliva, nictitating membranes, and flashing eyes. Incidentally, these dinosaurs were wearing skillfully constructed suits made by a man who had a degree in paleontology and were fitted over live chickens. Between giant penguins and chickens in tiny dinosaur outfits, you probably see an emerging pattern here. Sanderson frequently failed to distinguish between living things and props, or he simply didn't care to seek out the distinction, and this irked the venerated Huvelmans. Rash leaps like these hurt the credibility of their accounts, and left people wondering whether the Iceman was the only bozo in this picture. Just where did Huvelman's land in all of this? In 1974, he published a book 
containing an expanded look at his Iceman findings, only recently translated to English in 2016 and released as Neanderthal, the strange saga of the Minnesota Iceman. From his writings, we learned that Huvelmans, strangely, believed there was a cloak-and-dagger cover-up to conceal the true identity of the Iceman. This notion spiraled out of one of Hansen's many origin stories. Huvelmans apparently favored a version of the story wherein Frank Hansen procured the carcass while stationed in Vietnam. The creature was alleged to have been shot in the back of the head, which Huvelmans found consistent with the body's cranial trauma, the blown-out eyes, and the bloody ice. Then, it was rumored to have been purchased by the mystery owner and smuggled out of Vietnam and into the U.S. under Hansen's charge, using sordid methods that Huvelmans actually goes on to suggest may have become the template for all drug-running operations in Vietnam. Several chapters indicate that Huvelmans suspected a conspiracy of silence to make his theories look outlandish, possibly due to his connecting the dots between the Iceman and the U.S.'s hand in establishing the Vietnamese drug trade, and that the popular Minnesota origin story was part of that plot. Huvelmans had heard tell of a huge ape shot in Da Nang, Vietnam in 1966, near where Hansen had been stationed during the war, and believed this ape and the Iceman to be one and the same. He'd also been researching artwork and legends of ancient wild men, ranging from Mongolia to the Caucasus mountain regions to tales of a creature known as the Bar Manu in northern Pakistan. Homo pongoides, he concluded, was a likely candidate to match these representations, an elusive offshoot of modern Neanderthal man intermittently dispersed across Asia. Of course, the large hands and feet, hairy pelt, and ape-like facial structure were at odds with everything the scientific community had learned about Neanderthal man even then, but Huvelmans explained away the differences by stating that if the Neanderthal had indeed survived to the modern day, surely the species would have undergone evolutionary changes that would look unfamiliar to us if we were basing our expectations out of ancient fossils. Now, no species of hominid that we know of has evolved on a trajectory from less to more human and then doubled back to re-evolve more bestial features. But Huvelmans was an expert. It was difficult to believe he could make such a misstep. Slowly but surely, acceptance for the Iceman as a smuggled Asian crypto-hominid gained traction, igniting a debate between supporters and skeptics that has raged ever since. Despite Huvelmans' insistence that the creature was a living Neanderthal, the Iceman hype inevitably collided with the growing Bigfoot mystique. Soon, the Neanderthal concept was buried under an avalanche of speculation that Homo pongoides was actually a Bigfoot popsicle, perpetuated by those who, like Sanderson, wanted to believe. In the intervening decades, there have been a few 
takedowns of Hevelman's and Sanderson's writings, not so much by fellow scientists, but rather by people working in the sideshow trade. In a 1998 article for Freaks magazine titled The Mysterious Creature in Ice, artist Chris Fellner quoted Ivan Sanderson as saying, You just cannot make a corpse like this, either out of bits and pieces of the bodies of other animals or of wax with some half a million hairs inserted into it. And you can't get the kind of hairs that cover this corpse from any other kind of animal that I know of. To which he responded, Maybe uh, Sanderson should have visited the Ripley's Believe It or Not museums, where he would have found two life-size wooden statues of the Japanese artist Hananuma Masakichi. Masakichi-san created the perfect likenesses of himself when he thought he was going to die young from tuberculosis. He plucked every hair out of his body, including pubic hair, and painstakingly inserted them into tiny holes drilled into statues solid wood. Compared with that feat, putting hairs into wax would be a piece of cake. In August 2008, a car salesman named Rick Dyer and a police officer named Max Witten from Atlanta, Georgia, claimed they'd come across a 7-foot-tall, 500-pound Bigfoot carcass while hiking in the mountains. They shot a series of YouTube videos showing off their corpse, which they were storing in a freezer, before hosting a massive press conference claiming Bigfoot had been found. Fern Langdon, a seasoned Hollywood creature designer who'd worked on the Planet of the Apes franchise, happened to catch that conference. As he tells it, he just started laughing. He took to internet forums where talk of the Bigfoot specimen was buzzing and cautioned the masses that it was all a fake. He recognized the exact make of the so-called Bigfoot because it was a recreation of the design a colleague had once used to craft the Minnesota Iceman. Brian Brown and Paul Vela of Bigfoot Forums invited Langdon onto their cryptid-centric podcast where he explained who he was and how he knew the Bigfoot to be a hoax. In roughly 1966, Frank Hansen had approached Don Post Studios, where Langdon had worked at the time, hoping to commission an ape-man gaff. Hansen apparently rubbed Langdon the wrong way because Langdon refused to work with him. He'd gotten a sleazy vibe and felt that knowing Hansen's duplicitous intent and taking the money anyway would lower his professional integrity. That didn't stop him from recommending others who might take the job, though. In the end, Langdon referred Hansen to one Howard Ball. Despite not wanting to be involved, Langdon kept close tabs on the project, telling Vela and Brown that the prop was made from a vinyl hot melt. Those close to the late Howard Ball actually came out of the woodwork to correct this remark, stating that the creature was made from latex rubber, though Langdon disputed that claim, saying that it seemed inaccurate because rubber would deteriorate in water. In any case, both parties agreed that Ball crafted the body mold of the Iceman and then added pores so another artist could install the hair. Ball's artistic signature was absurdly large hands and feet, like the ones seen in the Iceman, which turned out to be consistent with his other creations. Langdon was clearly familiar enough with the Iceman's creation to recognize a copy when he saw it, so he called the Georgia Bigfoot out. But between his account and those of Howard Ball's homies, Hansen's mysterious creature was also put on ice. 
sort of. Those who'd always suspected the Iceman to be a hoax sure found validation in the Langdon interview, but remember how Frank Hansen claimed to have produced a second Iceman replica after sealing the real, original Iceman away somewhere? Well, even though Hansen outright stated that his second Iceman was a latex dummy, Huvelmans and Sanderson couldn't agree on whether or not he was lying. Sanderson denounced it as a fake right off the bat, but Huvelmans thought Hansen might have thought out the original and refrozen it in a new position, effectively hiding the true Iceman in plain sight. To what end, however, remains unclear. So far, it's impossible to determine whether there was ever a real carcass at all. Hansen never allowed samples to be taken from the Iceman. There was never any thawing or drilling into the ice to collect tissue or hair or fluids, so all that's ever been available for reference is the foggy silhouette of the creature through the ice. But with the original Iceman allegedly locked away somewhere, no one can say for sure what exactly that silhouette looked like. Huvelmans and Sanderson's extensive notes and photos are notoriously hard to obtain due to copyright protections, so comparison studies are virtually non-existent. The two men were rumored to have compiled a list of 15 noticeable differences between Hansen's new and original Iceman so that the true Iceman could be identified if it ever resurfaced. But this seems a contradictory move considering Huvelmans believed the second Iceman was the true Iceman, and if that list was ever real, they took it to their graves. If you believe Langdon's story about Ball custom crafting the Iceman, then any Iceman would be a fake, even the original, because it was made in a shop. But if you believe the original Iceman was a real carcass that just fell off the grid when Hansen debuted his second Iceman, then of course every Iceman's a fake, because the true Iceman is forever hidden. Whether the original was real or fake, how would we know it if we saw it? Even if we had Huvelmans and Sanderson's list of 15 telltale markers, would that be enough to reveal the truth? Iceman exhibits still make the rounds on occasion. There's actually one here in Austin at Steve Buski's Museum of the Weird. People who were around to see Hansen's Iceman say ours looks just like they remember it. Granted, while Hansen was on tour, People around the U.S. began claiming they'd seen the Iceman in locations the tour never even visited. Imitators cropped up to ride the Bigfoot wave while it lasted, so accounts from those who claimed they saw the Iceman up close ought to be taken with a grain of salt. There's a chance the one they saw wasn't even Hansen's creature at all. Confusing, I know. And it gets sillier. Hansen's Iceman Tour once visited a town at the same time as Bigfoot discoverers Patterson and Gimlin were there giving a presentation on their famous footage. The Minnesota Iceman allegedly stole the crowd from the Bigfoot event, leading Patterson and Gimlin to come after Hansen for costing them their investment. The jury's still out on whether this was a case of a hoax snubbing a hoax, or a cryptid snubbing a cryptid, or something in between, but one thing's for certain. Hansen ensured that the show would go on, and in this circus, Hewelmans and Sanderson were the clowns.
The theme song for Museum of Natural Mystery was created by Michael Guy Bowman. To discover more of his work, visit bowman.bandcamp.com. Museum of Natural Mystery is part of the Palmcast Network for Pomegranate Magazine. If you want to get a look at the Iceman for yourself, check out my companion post for the show at palmmag.com. I'll throw up some images of the creature in so much as I can because those copyright protections are no joke. But one more time, that's palmmag.com, P-O-M-E-M-A-G.com. You can also find more from me on Twitter at at NatMysteryCast, or email me your questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions for future topics at NatMysteryPodcast at gmail.com. Museum of Natural Mystery is on SoundCloud and on iTunes. Subscribe to catch the latest episodes when they drop, or if you like the show and want to let me know how I'm doing, please leave a review. It helps other listeners who are interested in topics like, say, hoaxes of natural history, find Museum of Natural Mystery. And that's it for today's show, everybody. I'll see you all next time with a brand new episode. But until then, I'm Emery Coolcats. Thanks for listening. <laughs>